to Flora and Friends, your botanical cup of tea, a podcast for plant lovers of any kind. We welcome guests to our botanical tea break to explore the history, science and meaning of plants for our lives. My name is Judith Lundbey-Felten. I'm a plant scientist, university researcher and founder of Flora L Design and I'm the hostess of your botanical cup of tea. Hello and welcome to this before last episode of the Fritillaria series. Today's interview guest is Lawrence Hill from the United Kingdom. He is a botanical photographer specializing in Fritillaria. And Lawrence has established a website that is called Fritillaria Icons. And you will find a wealth of photographic resources on many different Fritillaria species on his website. Um, They are freely available to use. They are all nicely put into PDFs with lots of information about the different parts of the plant. And he's going to talk more about how he's actually taking these pictures and why they are so important. Lawrence has um, turned these photographs also into pieces of art and exposed them at various exhibitions such as the Royal Botanic Garden Kew, um, shows of the Royal Horticultural Society in London, the Chelsea Flower Show, London Plant and Art Fair and as well at the University of uh, Warsaw Botanic Garden in Poland. Um, And we talked We talked about many things uh, about the process of taking the images itself and how he got to that. We talked about how how he decided and why he decided to put them up on a website to make them searchable. And uh, we also talked about the whole process of making art from uh, botanical images. And uh, the interview was quite long and uh, very insightful. There was a lot of... um, There was a lot of aspects that we touched upon and went quite deep into. So I've decided to cut this episode or this interview into two parts. So the first part is released today and the second part where we talk much more about the artistic work um, and how um, Lawrence approaches this. And that will be released next week's Wednesday. I also invite you to visit the blog post accompanying this episode where you can see some images that uh, Lawrence has taken and that also directs you to his webpage if you want to find out more uh, on his work. So with this, I hope that you will enjoy this interview and I say welcome to Lawrence Hill. That's very good of you to invite me. Let's talk a little bit about your work on botanical photography. How did your interest in botany and photography start and when did it merge into a botanical photography project? Um, it's, a very, it's a very peculiar route. Um, as a freelance photographer, I did lots of different work. And uh, one year I was in Greece, I was photographing villas for an for a, for a upmarket villa company. And the day had finished, I couldn't disturb people anymore. 
So I collected some wild garlic that I saw earlier and I made a temporary studio and I photographed this wild garlic sort of using a plastic table as a background and an old brick to prop them up and things. I love improvising. And that seemed fine and I was very happy with that, but I didn't do anything with it. Some years later, I was asked to take a photograph for somebody and they didn't like the print. And in the end, what we did is I was using film using six, seven uh, centimetre uh, film. Um, we scanned it digitally and we turned it to a digital image and we printed it on um, photo rag, 100% cotton paper. And this gave it very much like a sort of a parchment feel, the, the way the ink sat on the paper, the way the look of it was totally different. And at that point, I realised the garlic picture would print really well like that. So I had the garlic picture printed like that. This is great. I love the, the whole feel that I got from that and I thought right I'm going to start a project and I looked at different bulbous plants and tried to think you know which ones would be appropriate and I tried several and eventually I started with um, Fritillaria and that was in 2002 and I acquired some quite quickly and and that's that's really the origin of the process of the project. But the project started with film, which was then digitally scanned and then digitally changed, adjusted, and then printed. So that was the beginning of it. That's a very interesting route into that from from the little the little picture in Greece <laughs> to uh, 19 years of photographing uh, fritillaria. <laughs> yes, so, that's fantastic. What is the difference between photography and botanical photography? And maybe you can also tell us like how, how you learned botanical photography when you found out how that needed to be done differently. Well, photography is, photography is a very strange medium because people just say photography, they just say photography, but actually you could break it up into several different disciplines within photography. There are, you know, there's a celebrity and, and landscape and and um, um, very scientific photography. There's corporate. So it's very difficult. So when photography started, people like Fox Tolbert, who created the process that we know today as photography, and some of the early practitioners like Anna Atkins, they were very keen on photography in the service of botany. They could see that it could, it had um, it had a truthfulness about it. You took a photo and that was the subject. And, and they liked that. Obviously, it was quite primitive. And at the time, people would still use botanical uh, illustrators because, because they were able to do so much more. But there was this great enthusiasm to try to use this new tool. In the 20th century and through the 21st century, really, those pictures are not pictures of plants. They're pictures of us and the human condition. I mean, there are a number of artists, and um, we could look at Maplethorpe, highly sexually charged images. Um, that's about us. That's not about the plants. And um, so I think we are starting to see some people use photography to uh, to convey elements of, of botanical um, knowledge or to illustrate botanical things. But, um, but really, most photographs of plants are nothing to do with plants. So um, also photography is very degraded because Kodak would say, you know, you use my camera and, 
and everything is done for you. Just press the button. And that comes right the way through to the mobile phone. The companies always say, just press the button, just press it. it that, that's it. The camera takes the photo. Well, no, it doesn't. <laughs> the photographer takes the photo. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the idea of botanical photography, botanical photography is about science. Uh, it's not just li- literally like there's a plant in front of me and I take a nice detailed picture of a plant. It's about conveying some element of science. Um, and um, so how did I learn about this? You just you literally just learn. You you set about uh, an image that you wish to take and you find ways in which you can take that image. There isn't really, there aren't really a a guide for it. There are very few people use photography. Certainly when I started almost 20 years ago now, there were very few practitioners really looking at photography as a medium to to uh, to be involved in science in the way in which it, it's starting to be used now. So, uh, yeah, so self-taught really. That's the, I think that's mm-hmm. the only route. And what do you require today from this plastic table that you used in the in the first photograph in in Greece uh, to today, where you have more of a, a setup? What does it need to take really good quality botanical photographs? We, we, you need you need the, the best camera that you can get your hands on because in terms of the the resolution that it can record, because many of the processes are going to be identical. Uh, the time it takes is going to be identical. So if you can take a really, really good image, it's taking you the same time as you're taking a moderately uh, detailed image. So you, you might as well really push for the, the maximum detail you can. When I take the image, so most of the images I take, I take on an on a, on a off-white background. And I hand cut out the background. I don't photograph against black and I don't photograph against white. And I don't I do this because they create different effects. Black is a dreadful background because when you photograph on black, the edge of all of the subject merges. But when you look at it superficially on, it, on the screen, it looks fine. But when you go in, I work at the image at 400% or 500% of the image size. So I'm looking sometimes almost down to the pixel level of correction when I make my corrections, because I'm looking at each image I take, I, I create an image against this pure white background with sharp edges that's perfect. The images I take are all in a studio environment, so you're controlling the light, the subject, um, because you're often dealing with very small parts. You can't have movement. It's not possible. The images are what they call uh, layer uh Uh, a focus stacked and layer stacked. So but the photography's limitation and the great reason that it struggled to take hold in botanical work is it has no depth of field. Um, when you get close to the subject, the depth of field can be less than a millimeter. Um, and of course, botanical artists can paint all the detail in that's necessary. Uh, to overcome that in the digital age, you take a series of images at different focal points. You just keep moving the, the, the focal, you move, move the camera or move the lens slightly and you take a series of images. Some people take several hundred. I mean, I, I don't know how they, how they process that, but you take a series of images, you then stack them together in a computer. It, 
there are programs that do this, but it isn't just click. It's still a process. It still cr creates um, all sorts of anomalies. There are areas that, in fact, never even got recorded. There are all sorts of technical problems. So then you get a graphic pad and a pen, and you have to go and you literally have to redraw the bits that aren't in focus, the bits that, that are missing, the bits that have not gone through the, the digital uh, merging process. You, you literally redraw those parts in. But you end up with a file which something that might be, say, a centimetre worth in the image that, of the, the original subject, you might be able to blow that up to 20 times or 30 times its original size. So you end up with a, an image has enormous um, potential because it can be used at so many different scales. Um, but from that, that's just a part of an image. Um, I build images. So, so using, using, the, using things like Photoshop, I'm going to use the different parts of, the, of different bits of plants to build images together to create these, these bigger images that I might uh, present finally. Mm -hmm. How long does it take you to, I mean, both take these images uh, of a living plant that you need to kind of take while it's, <laughs> it's well, not well, dying under the camera, <laughs> and well, then also to rework the images? I, you find various techniques. So, for instance, if I take a picture of a plant, I take I most of the plants are in pots, so I can move them into the studio. And I take uh, what I would call a portrait. So I just take a portrait of that plan. But of course, I also want to get the bulb and the roots. So I then subsequently will tip the plan out. In the different setup, I'll then photograph the bulbs and the roots lying on glass because, because I need to get that structure. Um, so the portrait might be relatively quick, might take, say, 20, 30 minutes to take the portrait. I obviously, you've still got the stacking. The stacking could be another five to 10 hours. <laughs> the picture of the of the bulb and the roots it, it will take between i suppose one and four hours to clean off all that material to get what you need but when you're digging a bulb up if you're not careful you're not going to catch all the detail of that bulb mm. and um there's a lot in the story of that plant in that bulb and in the roots and if you don't capture that you are missing a lot of the of understanding that organism mm -hmm. um if you if you go to herbaria and look at herbaria, about only 10 percent of herbarium sheets perhaps have a bulb with them so that's 10 percent of herbaria sheets 90 percent don't tell you that story um in fact the majority probably another 90 percent of them are plants in flower what about all these other life stages where are they? How, how, what, what, what do we know about those other life stages? We don't know about them. The picture of the, of the bulb and the roots, quite simple at that part, <laughs> but you still stack it. And then you've also got to then join it to the main portrait. So you've got to join all that together. Um, when you've done the portrait, you dissect the flower, then you have to work very rapidly because you're, you're losing, uh, losing the plant rapidly. So you can, you, decide what you need to do you cut it up you take the picture as quickly as possible you sometimes press it because you want to keep it as a reference material you might want to go back to it um and that merge those are the most complicated mergers the really tiny close-up ones so 
for me to make a PDF of a main portrait with the bulb and the roots and a dissected flower, 15 hours, perhaps. Um, but it could, be, it could be a little less, but it could often be a lot more. Um, so, yeah, it's, a very, it's very involved. Um, I don't like to think about the time. I think it's a horrible thing because you stop. <laughs> you wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> I, I presented some images at, at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show a few years ago. And of the different compositions, I didn't, up to that point, just lay down one leaf and photograph single leaves of different species. So I had to shoot those from scratch. So I made a note of how long it took me. So I photographed about 30 leaves of which I used, I think I used 24 leaves. Um, each were layer stacked. Uh, it, between say four and six images each had to be corrected and then I'd draw them all together put them into composition that one image took me 70 hours wow <laughs> and it's 22 little leaves in a circle mm -hmm. it's a beautiful um, image yeah. so, so people might look at that and think oh, oh you just put some leaves down in a circle and went click mm -hmm. No, it wasn't one two hundredth of a second. No, mm. that was 70 hours work. That doesn't include sourcing and growing the material, um, mm. which you need to do before you can even approach <laughs> taking any photographs of it. Mm. So, so, yeah, it's an involved process. But, but that one image, I could probably blow it up on the side of someone's wall, even though I've only... I've only used it at 60 by 60 centimetres. It quite easily can be a much, much uh, bigger image used in a large, uh, large gallery setting. Or you know, So, uh, yeah, so that's what it takes to take one of these images. That is amazing. That's really, really the work of an artist, of spending so much time and seeing. You must be so familiar with all the details of every leaf after that process. One of the weird things, and it, it goes back to working in a dark room, printing in a dark room, um, you could sometimes spend, particularly if you photographed a person, you might have photographed somebody, it's like a, a portrait, and you've gone into the dark room and printed off a lovely black and white picture, but you might take several hours before you're happy with the, the print you make. By the time you've finished, you, you've noticed every blemish on this poor person's face, every little detail about them. And you probably know them as intimately in that respect as they do themselves, putting their makeup on or something or brushing their hair. And that happens because of the digital process, because once you've taken the image, when you're processing it on the computer, when you're going and making these corrections, you are really noticing so much about the plant. Um, um, and at times you haven't caught something you you realise you should have done, and this teaches you to to prepare yourself more before you take a photograph to think through because everything you miss you, you can hand correct it back in again, but that's a lot of extra work unnecessarily rather than catch the detail to start with and then process it relatively straightforwardly so, so yeah, it teaches you to use your eyes um and yeah you become very very you, you spend a lot of intimate time with that subject in in the computer part of that process mm. now i just need to look at my questions where was this i'm, I'm getting so emerged into, into this <laughs> Uh, yeah, do you also use sometimes 
analytical tools to quantify any uh, anatomical features? No, I have thought about it because um, one of the things in fritillary, which I've noticed, so because I grow them, because I've done field work, because I've looked at them in herbariums, because I've read so much of the literature, because I'm growing them myself and then photographing them, many of these processes would be divided up amongst people. Um, and you become aware of things that perhaps wouldn't be the case if you had individual tasks in that process. One of the things that strikes me with some, not all fritillaria, some fritillaria, specific species, is that they, they go, their lifestyle, so firstly they're bulbed, so their lifestyle is non-linear. We think that something's born, it, it grows a bit, it becomes sexually active, it has offspring, it matures a bit, and it dies. But bulbs might live 100 years, and they might actually go all the way up through that process into, a, into an adult stage, and then they might fall back into a juvenile stage, and then come back to an adult stage. Um, and in fact, they might even go to sleep for several years. So um, they have this different cycle. And so some fritillarias in their non-adult stage will produce a leaf where the total leaf area is in excess of the multi-leaf adult plant, which is sexually active, has flowers. And I'm often being fascinated by the fact that these juveniles seem as if they are gathering energy to their bulbs in an absolutely phenomenal sense. So I have, I have thought about this, but the trouble is there are so many questions that, that, that are posed from studying a single group of plants in this way that there, there doesn't seem to be enough time. It's something that I have considered actually analysing leaf size, bulb size and their life history stages because I think it's a fascinating aspect of bulb. So, you know, I, I try to take a series, I'm working on a series of both life history stages and life cycle stages. So um, people may not know the difference. So life cycle in, is showing that when it emerges, how it emerges, it comes up through the ground, it grows in a particular way, it might put its leaves out first, it might push its flower out first, how it is that eventually it reaches its flowering point, and then after, in the case of fritillaria, the stem will straighten, the, the, the capsule will, will push upright, ready for it, and it actually will carry on growing taller, um, because it's an early plant, by the time it's wanting to distribute its seeds, the grasses around it have, have, have climbed up, so it has to push up even higher to be able to distribute itself. Um, whereas the life history stage is showing how it is when it first germinates in its first year, how it is in its second year, how it is when it's multi-leafed and perhaps but without a flower at what I would call like this, this teenage stage, when it reaches its full adulthood, showing these different stages of being. So I think it's, it's, it's useful to record these things, the things that are not there, uh, uh, often amongst all the records that we keep on plants. My feeling with bulbs, which I think is, is, is so often not understood, is that bulbs are, are quite different to other types of life uh, forms, like herbaceous or annuals and things. I see them as a very conservative, very cautious organism. An annual is, is like the risk taker. Um, it emerges, hopefully at the right time. The triggers are there for it to emerge at the right time. And it's just 
really, really hoping that it will manage to reproduce itself before it dies. Whereas a bulb has learned to hide away from awkward times and only emerge caught carefully. But that also means, I believe, that a bulb potentially, in the terms of fritillaria, I think it has at least three years worth of growing in its bulb. Mm-hmm. So that if it emerges and it's grazed, it, it has enough energy to fall back on to come back in the subsequent year. It, it won't be as big because it didn't photosynthesize that year, but it has that potential to recover from that catastrophic event. You said you photograph them, but you grow them as well. So have you been traveling the world to collect the bulbs from different places? And how do you take them home when you collect them? Well, m- most of what I grow is from seed. And that's because uh, it's this, an encounter I had some, some time ago and someone said it's really important to have plants with provenance. And again, it comes back to the point. It takes the same effort to grow a meliagris, which you've bought um, um, from the garden center, say, as one that you've sent from seed. Um, I was sent some seed from uh, eastern England, from Fox Fritillary Meadow, 13 years, it's 11, no, 11 years ago now. It flowered this year for the first time. <laughs> But as a result of that, I now have photographs with wild provenance from, from original seed collections from... Um, I've photographed five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten different fritillaras from different locations. I've gone from Altai, Russia, from Siberian Russia. I've got them from Hungary and Austria and Croatia. Um, I've got um, in the UK, I've got four different sites in the UK I photographed them for. And these plants are now able to tell other stories because they come from different populations because there are slight differences in terms of how they are and not just their morphological differences there's differences in timing there's differences in 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 the um the way that they present themselves uh, um some some of them will be um shorter uh, flower a month early um some of them are more upright so there are all these differences that i can now start to explore i haven't process all the images yet but these are different ways i can look at them now and present different aspects to them so yes i do the field work occasionally i've been able to bring material back but that's normally only if i have permission and i've worked with local people um but seed is always 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 the best way because um if you sow 20 seeds you may only get two or three that'll survive But those are the two or three that are suited to, to, to your conditions. I know that doesn't fully represent the, the wild population, but if you bring a single bulb or two bulbs back from the wild, you'll probably kill them. Mm. They, they're so adapted to the circumstances in which they are in. Um, most of the reason for field work is to understand how they grow, where they grow, but also to look at the bulbs. I'm very, very interested in bulb structure and root structure. And, um, I see things in cultivation and I want to validate that. I want to see if what I'm seeing actually occurs in the wild or if it's as a result of its sort of natural plasticity that it's changed in cultivation. So I need to, I need to be sure that I'm presenting things that are, that are uh, uh, true to their nat- natural state. 
can you plant the plants back into the soil after you have photographed them? They go back them? into the pot. Yeah. Um, I photograph every single plant that I photograph. I photograph at the point that some of the anthers start to open as they okay. go hence. So mm. every single plant is photographed at exactly the same point in its life cycle. So there's this comparison you can make between all the different images. Mm. So. Beautiful. Oh yeah, that's a. It's, I I really get into this. It's a, a work that's an. It's an art. It's not just science. It's not just botany. It's an art of of capturing this, of capturing the innermost things of the plants that are not microscopy, <laughs> that are a little bit bigger, but still very very much detailed information about these plants. It's very. I think it's very interesting to to compare these uh, botanical illustrations, and um, I know you have written about that as well. It's the Linnean style of botanical illustrations, and that may not suit the digital time today when people look up information on digital devices. So, um, between the Linnean style and your own type of photography, what's the difference? Well, botanical illustrators, of which there are, there are very few in the world, I mean, real botanical illustrators, because most uh, botanical inst institutions can't afford to, to pay them. They don't pay them very well, and they can't even afford to pay them <laughs> at, at all. And they're working towards creating plates which will fit in books. Well, that's a, a restriction that we don't have anymore. Um, I know we all love books, but at the end of the day, if we need to expand knowledge rapidly to deal with many of the other contemporary issues we have, we need to liberate images to the internet where things can not only be distributed widely, um, there are not restrictions in terms of cost restrictions in poorer countries that need a lot of this information. There are other individuals that might want to access information that otherwise wouldn't even know where to start to access the information. And of course, when you deal with a book process, it's a very slow process. New information comes along. You can't sort of just re-edit it as you can on a web page or, or something. You could change it rapidly, relatively rapidly. Um, so you need to embrace a digital world. So you can still make, uh, you can still use botanical illustrations and traditional pen and ink and, and, and watercolours, but you have to think about their outputs and how those outputs are going to be used in a digital space. And, and that's really what I try to get people to understand. Um, and so I might take pictures that have that style in them, but in general I don't because I'm trying trying to move towards using this digital space um, and understand how the user would interact, how databases could be formed in relation to those spaces. So, um, so yeah, that's I suppose how, how my pictures differ. Tr I'm trying to, in format terms, I'm trying to look forward to, to this different medium. Mm -hmm. You have the Fritillaria Iconis website, and you have lots of resources on there. When was that kind of connected to you starting photographing it, that you had that in mind, that it would go on that website? Or did you first start to take pictures and realize that's really beautiful, I should distribute it and make it available? When I started the process, it was a hybrid process. I was using a medium format camera that gives you 
these large negatives. So it's quite expensive process and you take Polaroids and quite an old fashioned process, but then I digitally have them digitally scanned. And then from there, I, I was creating portraits and I was printing these portraits up. Um, it was an expensive process, but I, 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 I really liked the, the, the way the process was. And I presented them a couple of times and I got a very odd reception. I got a very strong public reception to them, but those people, the, the sort of so-called experts looking at them, they, they were picking holes in it and not really appreciating what I was doing. And I went away from that. I thought, you know, this is, this has been a very costly exercise. I'm trying to present something in a, in a new style and you're sort of just picking at it. And I, and one or two of them would be very, very strong about it. I thought, well, I'm not really sure where else I would go with that. And I had to really step back. And it's at that point I thought, well, I've I've read a lot. I'm starting to acquire all this knowledge. I can't just sort of jettison it because I've come up against this sort of slight sort of old-fashioned attitudes to things. So I decided I'd put the whole lot online. Just put the whole lot online. And um, I didn't exhibit any work for six more years. Mm-hmm. just put the whole lot online and um and that was a new learning curve learning to write code learning to con- to 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 be able to understand how the internet worked how a database should be um think about other botanical databases being <laughs> dreadfully disappointed with with the image quality of databases in general there's they're text rich but they're image poor um and um so that's the course I took for, I say, for the next six years. Um, and that's how that transition took place, really. Um, I just thought it was silly to jettison things. I mean, in reading the literature, you so often come up against things and you realise that someone hasn't noticed this or they're not, not investigating that. And, and within your photographs, you're trying to display these things. Um, the, the, it, the first image I, fo- I displayed after this period was one at Kew. And I created a mock-up and I had been working with the geneticists at Kew on their research. And I'd be producing sort of um, like rather sort of A4 prints all stuck together to, to make a, a visual representation of how the research was going, how we could understand the results because genetic results often differed with some traditional views of how things were. And I, I proposed that we, we put 80 Fritillaria's life size in their genetic order so they could visualize this paper. They were receptive to the idea and we put it together. It was a 10 meter image. The, the size was the reality of having to put together this, this uh, phylogenetic tree into the visualization. But that picture and the way it's presented, it, 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 it has a, an interesting form. It has a meditative quality though about it as well. People would sit there and they would look at the plants, they'd look at the bulbs, they'd look at the roots. They'd notice that the bulb size and the depth of the bulb had no relationship, which is commonly put out there. They'd notice that some plants had little tiny plants, but they might have lots of root system to them. You could just sit there and you can examine that group of organisms in relation to each other. You can be the scientist examining them in that presentation. Um, 
Um, one of the things that's repeatedly said is that bulbs have all this energy to push up there quickly to seize that moment to, to, to reproduce because that's the ultimate goal, reproduction. Go and look at the website, look at those bulbs. Most fritillarias renew their bulb for the following year at the point they flower. In other words, that is a completely false narrative. And the information is there in the photographs showing you how they behave, that they behave in this quite different way. So um, that's the process from trying to perhaps present new information, not being receptive and then going through a, a complete rethink in how, how, how I was going to present that and coming up with the idea of producing this database. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is, uh, you know, you, you, you run into a barrier, you run into a person who discourages you and that brings a new idea and that brings a different way that maybe was even better than before. So it's, it's, it's tricky in that moment to really appreciate that person who put, maybe he put an, a, a barrier in front of you and told you that that's not the way to go, but you made it in a different way that is serving a lot of people today because there's lots of researchers that are using your pictures today due to the database that you have created. Yeah, I mean, I, criticism is very difficult, but I think you have to just go away and think about it and and take it on. You don't necessarily have to agree with it, but you have to just not take it too personally and think, right, okay, what? Am, where, where, where do I go next? How do I deal with that? Are they right? I often they might not be. And if they're not, you just carry on. Or if there's some sense of whether they're wrong, you need to take that on board. Mm -hmm. so. How do you make the your images searchable on your so, website or on the web in general? So this is an area that frustrates me. When we come to commerce, they know exactly how to get right to the top of search, straight up there. But when we come to, to, to science, when we come to a lot of these botanical institutions, they don't seem to know how to get there. And that's perhaps they don't have the resource to employ these people. And a lot of it's down to the metadata. Images, particularly, there are increasingly so software and search engines that are able to start scanning images to understand what's in the image. But when I started this process, it's all text driven. Um, so you've got to make sure that every single photograph is named. It can't be um, file 3572. It must be Fritillaria meliagris. Or in my case, it might be Fritillaria meliagris 001 or 864 or 863, whichever one it is. You've got to give it a name because that name is what the search engines are looking at. And then the photographs... Or, or in my case, I produce these PDFs, they can be encrypted with metadata. So again, you've got to go in to the, the dialogue boxes where you can change the metadata. You've got to put it in there. You've got to name the plant. You've got to put its synonyms, its botanical synonyms. You've got to put its common names. You've got to put perhaps it's in Liliaceae. You might make other references to its location. You've got to put that data into the, into the metadata box. And then on the web page as well, you must fill in all the metadata in the web page. There are bits of hidden data in every web page. You, you, can, you can right click and go and look at the metadata. And there's a section called the head and the head doesn't appear anywhere on the page. 
and that head tells you the date that, the, that it was uploaded it tells you uh, perhaps who did it it tells you the title of the work it might have connections to little tiny thumbnails that you must make so that when you search and you see the lovely little images by the side if you have an image by the side of a search search you're more likely to link on it well, you have to make that image and you actually have to encode it so that the search engine can find it and put it there so you have to learn how you maximize um so that images particularly are found and, and we live in this i mean the internet is about images more than I mean, the data is important but images are often the route in which we follow so we, so we need to make sure that images particularly can also be found, not just text. It's a lot of work behind, behind the scene, <laughs> yeah. behind the images, yeah. and not, not at all photography or botany. It's really, um, <laughs> yeah, website, what, website the they work. Call web optimization, web, website mm. optimization. Exactly. And I think especially in a in a time where there's a lot of fake news and these are appearing up on top of the searches, it's important that we, as, as uh, from a scientific background or from a scientific um, point of view, make sure that our information can also be found. Um, so we are, we are not an exception to search engine optimization. That also concerns us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what do you do when plants change their name? Uh, and do you? how do you keep your resources up to date? Well, that's where, that's where I go against search engine optimization. So um, when I make a PDF, the PDF is always just numbered. Of, of course, we ought to give it its, its name, what that plant is within that PDF, but I just number it. So I call it Frittler Icons, and then it has a three-digit number, mm. which means that... If people have linked to that, some of my PDFs are are linked on the um, genome uh, database. Sometimes people uh, will quote one of my uh, uh, one of my PDFs because it references something else they're doing. It might be that it has details of a look, of a record showing that it came from this place. This, this is a record of it. And so I only use numbers in that case, and that means that the links to those PDFs will always remain true, as long as I don't restructure my website. Um, someone like, say, for instance, Edinburgh Botanic Garden, they are using DOIs for all of their herbarium specimens, so that when people quote that herbarium specimen, there's a DOI. That means it's always going to be found, much the same as DOIs are used for scientific papers. Um, I can't afford to go and pay buy um, DOIs, because you have to pay for them. So I just keep the number um and then if the if i see the name has changed i will go into the pdf and i'll adjust it so i'll change it give it its current name i'll change the synonyms because that's changed so the pdf will be updated but the file name will remain the same and therefore links from past papers will still come to that but but that also goes to this idea that when people do their research they are obliged to have herbarium specimen they need they need specimens to lodge with that paper to say this is the material used and there you can go and inspect it and it is the same thing you need to make sure that that research when it's published and the original specimens can always remain linked as soon as those links break that research has lost its usefulness because it can no longer be validated mm. so um so it's it's 
these are important links that I think need to be maintained. Um, that's so I do it, I do it manually in a way, but yeah. DOIs would be better. Um, maybe that brings us uh, to to the question that I have here. You you make these resources available, and researchers are using them. Um, is there any way that people who use your research just can, I mean, compensate for the time, the work, the money, everything that you spend to make that available? Um, I, I've avoided commercializing my work. Um, it's it's it, it, it's not my it's not how I make my income, fortunately, and it's something that, from my perspective, it's very. It's very worthwhile for me. I feel that I can contribute, uh, uh, make you know, important contribution. Um, that's my contribution to to society. Um, yes, it's very expensive, but um, I'm still reluctant to commercialize it. I'm, um, it would be nice if someone else was running the database, was hosting it, and so forth. But I'm, I'm still. I'm still unsure about that because I don't think that they fully embrace some of these ideas that I'm, I've expressed earlier with, with linking properly with visibility. So will the, will the visibility of the database, will it actually fade away somewhat? Therefore, it, uses, it loses its usefulness. So at the moment, um, I'm not asking anyone for any help. <laughs> So this was the first part of our episode with Lawrence. Um, the second part will be released next week, Wednesday, and we go much more into the arts uh, and yeah, the as some philosophical aspects actually of the work that he has done and the expositions he has made. And yes, a warm welcome to visit our blog post associated to this episode on www.flora-l.com forward slash blog and of course the Fritillaria icons website both of them are linked to here in the show notes for you to easily get there and with that I wish you a lovely weekend yeah I hope you join us here again next Wednesday. Bye.